from Matthew 13, and I might add many other uh, additional scriptures. So if you have your Bible, your app, whatever, um, and you want to kind of follow along, you'll have lots to work on. I'm in a series right now, and it's kind of strange to be in the middle of the summer and be in a series, but we haven't had a summer slump at Faith Community. Matter of fact, we haven't had a summer slump for almost as long as I can remember being at Faith Community, but um, we're, we're in a series, and uh, Pastor Todd's been in a series as well. The title of my series is The Truth Is, and the whole purpose of this series is to present truth. And um, so it's, it's, I call it Christian apologetics, and I always have to explain that Christian apologetics is not apologizing for being a Christian. It's, a, it's the foundational anchors, the systematic defense of the basic tenets of our Christian faith, something we all need to know and something we all need to be reminded of. And I felt like we had a kind of a combination uh, of people in our, uh, in our uh, fellowship here, some who didn't yet quite know because they hadn't been taught, and some who maybe had been taught, but it's time for a refresher. So that's why we opened this several weeks ago, a few months ago, and we're still working our way through. And uh, it's kind of like I said, Paul Little's books, Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. And I think if there was ever a day where Christians needed to know what they believe and needed to know why they believe, it's today or days that are fast approaching. And so I, uh, I ask for your undivided attention today. Todd and I were just talking before service and said, you know, with the rain out there and it's kind of dull and the breakfast wasn't high key, it was more or less low key, but it was fun and people were here. Uh, I said, yeah, and then I'm going to preach. So that's really going to finish it off. But um, my disclaimer is this. Please get the disclaimer. You miss everything else I'll be saying. Today's teaching is not, and I underscore not, fear-driven. It is instead fact-based. It's not about judgment. It is not about condemnation. Instead, it's all about eternal grace and forgiveness. And I'm in favor of eternal grace and forgiveness. Are you? Yeah. And it's certainly not about, um, and I'm not here to defend him because he needs no defense. It's not about a mean, vindictive God. It's all about a loving, saving, compassionate, full of grace God. And that I want to set as the backdrop of this message, which I've entitled, this is message number five, by the way, if you're you're counting, Concerns Over God's Justice. I don't know where you are in your apologetics, your personal apologetics as far as being a Christian, and if you interact with people who are not or don't understand or have just heard a few things and they've, they've formed their opinions. But uh, people like to get all over God and his system of justice. And on the other hand, they're very happy that he seems to be a God of love and he has a heaven to gain, for us to gain. And it doesn't seem like it's balanced, people that don't know him. And so I want to just run down through some of the popular complaints that people have. And so I'm going to do a thought starter uh, exercise, which I often do with you, little brain engagers, so uh, get ready to turn on the switch. Don't anybody answer audibly, but try to answer somewhat um, as pointed as you can in your own mind these few questions, and that'll kind of set us up for what I want to teach. 
because nobody absolutely knows and there are no references that really tell us, I want to ask the first question, what have you imagined hell to be like? Yeah, I said that word, and it's, hell is not a bad word, it's a Bible word, and uh, people use that word in front of me quite often, and then they apologize, and I say, don't apologize, it's a Bible word, and they use other words too, and sometimes I tell them the same thing, other times I can't quite tell them that. Um, and don't be afraid of that word hell. Don't be afraid of the use of it. Um, and the reason I like to say that is because 115 times in the Bible, you'll read the words fear not or do not be afraid. So um, this, is, this is where we start today. And you're going to hear me say this word over and over. What have you imagined it to be like? And secondly, why do you think hell is even necessary? Or why might it be necessary? And those of you that are visiting today said, wow, this is, this is a great start here. How does a person end up there? What, what is the, what's the whole idea anyway? And then another question that's often asked is, why doesn't God just do away with the bad people so there won't be a need of a hell? Have you ever thought of that? And then the important thing is, this question, who was hell originally prepared for? And until you know that, you're probably not ready to discuss this matter with any certainty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. We ask now that you would open our minds, eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would quicken our spirits, that our souls would be refreshed, Lord, as we turn to you, as we turn to your word, as we discover what it is you have to say to us, and then, Lord, as we're faced with choices, that we are encouraged and we're urged to make the right choices. Father, thank you for everyone that's gathered this morning. May each one receive the blessing that they need to move on in their lives, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I must admit that I find it rather captivating, and I'm not a Hollywood fan. I'm not a movie guy. I think I've seen three movies in my lifetime, and I was coerced into two of them, but um, I've probably seen a few more than that, but uh, the only two I can remember are The Godfather and Old Yeller. So I like to keep them kind of in the same milieu, you know, yeah. Um, the reason I remember that is when I went to see The Godfather, that was the first film I had seen since Old Yeller. Yeah. Does that date me? Well, that doesn't bother me. That's fine. But I am fascinated as I look at magazine covers or as I read what's out there on the internet, or especially as I listen to comments coming from the famous people out of Hollywood, and their fascination, especially in recent times, and more and more as we approach the day, uh, with spiritual issues. And I have to put spiritual in quotations, because what they talk about spiritual stuff is really not what you and I mean when we say spiritual, led of the Holy Spirit, guided by the Word of God, etc., etc. And you know, they have these ideas of spiritual issues, and they're pretty twisted at times. Now, there are any number of films dealing with angels today, dealing with the spiritual world, uh, even heaven and hell. Uh, and then it goes on into stuff like Armageddon and uh, all of the prophetic themes that we study. And one of the most graphic, I guess, is the film Ghost. I'm waiting for someone to respond. Maybe nobody's seen it. Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. 
You wouldn't admit it if you did anyway. And they're playing, they're playing this young couple, uh, who, who, they're upscale Manhattan yuppie couple, and they've moved into their first apartment, and they have everything. They have it all. The world's in their lap right there. But they return home one night shortly after moving into this new apartment, and the man, Sam, is mugged and killed. And uh, by the way, that's happening quite often uh, today, isn't it? I wonder why people are, are repeating things that they see and hear in, 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 in movies and stories and so on. just makes you wonder, doesn't it? And it seemed like it was a robbery attempt. It seemed like it was just another one of those foolish things that happens in her city. The intense chemistry between Sam and his, uh, his woman, Molly, makes his death feel very tragic. They hadn't been together that long. They're just starting life together. Things seem to all be there. But Sam's ghost rises from his body, and justice must be done before he is, before his death feels, you know, is, is allowed to, before he's allowed, actually, to leave this world. He's going to linger for a while. He's going to hang around. So in some of the most graphic scenes, I understand, and some of the most graphic anyone will ever see, and if you've seen it, I'll be here after service today, and we'll have, we'll have, a, we'll have some prayer for you to cleanse your head. But apparently Sam's murderers individually meet their demise in the movie, and at the time of their death, then there are shadowy demons who appear from the underworld, and they commence to drag their screaming victims into hell to meet their doom. Now, now there, everyone's feeling good this morning, right? I want to start off by cheering you up. It's interesting, though, to me, and I want to make a point here, and I'm stretching the illustration to make it. It's interesting to me that the world seems more and more interested in the spirit world and the afterlife where the church today is often astonishingly silent. We talk about morals in the church, and we ought to. We talk about how to live your life. We talk about how to succeed in this life. We talk, about, we talk about interpersonal relations. We talk about the mission of the church. But we say very little about heaven. And I know a lot of preachers who use this excuse. I've used it myself, so I know. Uh, well, there isn't really a description of heaven in the Bible, so it's hard to really preach on it other than be good, come to Christ. When you die, you go to heaven. So we don't talk much about heaven, and we talk even less about hell. Now, here's the truth. Today, probably more than at any other time, people outside the church are concerned with what eternity will be like. They want to know about this thing called death, life after death, heaven, is there a hell? Most of them believe there isn't. And they want to know about these things. For many, the very idea of a hell is just mysterious. And for whatever reason, people are thinking about, talking about, trying to learn more about hell and about heaven, but they don't really have a concept of a loving, merciful, forgiving, all-gracious God. And it's pretty hard to understand these concepts without, and I want you to hold that thought for a moment. Some people even walk away from the Christian faith I, I get a kick out of people who walk away from the faith because of the church. So it was people that they were worshiping, not God. We need to be careful here. 
People walk away from the faith because they don't like the idea of a God, and I'm going to use the words, who would send someone to hell. I don't either. Probably the most avowed atheist that ever put thoughts on paper was Bertrand Russell, and he was fond of saying this, and I quote, there's one very serious defect to my mind, in Christ's moral character, we know there were none, and that is that he believed in hell. Russell went on to say, I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And that's the end of the quote. Now let me just say this. He's not alone in his objection. Because I have had scores of conversations over many years on this very subject. So I'd like to honestly address these issues today. And every time I'm in a conversation like that with one or two or three people, I think, there, I'm gonna, that's my next message right there. But I've never come back to it, it seems, in recent years. And I want to today address the issue and try to answer some of the main questions and concerns that people have about God's justice and about heaven and about hell, etc. Now, there are a lot of questions that people put forward, but one of the most central, and that's what I want to deal with, are the central questions on people's minds today. The first one is, what is hell like? So to put it in the simplest terms, it is total separation from God. It means that for all eternity, one will live apart from God and any and everything that's good. So those who, are in, those who are banished, if you will, are banished from the presence of the most wonderful and loving being in all the universe. They'll be excluded from everything of value, everything of beauty, everything of meaning, and everything that ultimately matters. They'll live in a crush of people, but they'll be terribly alone. They'll be plagued by desire and know nothing of fulfillment. It's, it's like living forever in the presence of shame, regret, anguish, and conscious failure. Never again will a person experience a meaningful relationship or know anything of love, particularly the love of God. That's not a pretty scene. Well, what does Jesus say? Over in Matthew 13, which I've chosen to kind of use as a springboard today, he describes the place this way. And by the way, can I just give you a, a little forethought here? In Matthew 13, Jesus is explaining in this part of the uh, chapter the parable of what we call the parable of the tares or the parable of the weeds. And it deals with the treatment of the evil force which is going to emerge during the millennial period. And so a lot of what he's saying is symbolic. He's speaking here metaphorically. Here is what he says starting at verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that, that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me move on to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 47 and 48 if you're fo trying to follow along. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Obviously, right there, Jesus wants us to avoid hell at all costs. It's full of fire. Preachers have spent years trying to describe it, the whole hellfire and brimstone stuff. I... I don't know how you describe it. 
Because the kind that Jesus speaks of here can't be the same kind of fire that we know. And again, I say, I think he's speaking symbolically. If it were an actual fire, the people there would be consumed, so for them it would be over quickly. And he makes it very clear in his teaching, he's speaking of the reality of existing apart from God is the most appropriate term available in human language and experience. We speak of a burning shame. Oftentimes you hear that, uh, you hear, hear that description. Only hell is a burning shame without end or without relief. So the suffering produced by unforgiven sin and shame is worse than a literal flame, for there is no end to it. Now anyone who's ever known deep personal moral failure knows something, just an inkling, of what hell feels like. Anyone who has lost something of great value in life knows something of what it feels like. Anyone who has suffered from great feelings of inadequacy or inferiority knows something of what it feels like. Anyone who has felt the searing pain of personal rejection and the loss of significant relationships knows something of what it feels like. It's living with the eternal pain of what could have been. It's living with the eternal suffering and knowing what you should have done. It's living with the eternal pain of knowing what could have been, how things could have turned out. It's living with the eternal suffering of knowing where you should be, with whom you should be, and what you should be doing, and knowing that you've gone another way. It's living with the eternal suffering of knowing, let's say this again, what you should have done, but were not willing to do. I'm coming back to that. It's living, it's the eternal torture of knowing that you spent your life on things which had no lasting value. You lived your days in a self-centered, self-indulgent type of attitude, addicted to just pleasing yourself. And now, your choices are fixed. You're the slave of your own ideas, your own passions, your own peevishness. You live life in a shallow void. You avoid God. You despise what was good. You were angry throughout life. You were unforgiving throughout life. You were sated with selfishness. You were filled with apathy toward things that really mattered. And now you don't have the strength or the appetite for values or for morals or for goodness or for the deep things of God and the friendship that you can have with Him. Therefore, you get separated from it all and you get separated from Him forever. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 33 and verse 14. He said, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire and who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? And I think what he's saying is this is how to describe eternal punishment. Now the second central question that's often asked is this. And people asking are asking out of sincerity, but they're hoping for a no answer. And the question is, is hell forever? And the short answer is yes. Because once you are born, I'll back back up even more, once you are conceived, I'll back up even more, once 
you become reality in the mind of God, you live forever. People use the term YOLO today, you only live once. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. We have another thing we used to say, actually, that if you're born once, you die twice, and if you're born twice, you may die once, or you may not die at all. But the truth still remains, you only live once. You were created, and I was created, to be immortal beings. So here's the question. Where is it that we're going to live forever? Well, that's up to us to decide. That's up to you to decide. That's up to me to decide. See, here here are your choices. You can live in the presence of God forever, or you can live away from the presence of God and His influence forever. The reality is, the choices we make in this temporal world have eternal or forever consequences. Dallas Willard put it like this, I am now leading a life that will last forever. Let me illustrate this with a story that um, I heard. Uh, this was a pastor and who told this story, and he lives in a faraway state, and I don't think he still pastors, but he wrote this, and he said when he and his wife-to-be, his then-girlfriend, were in college, they were part of a street evangelism team, and if you've never done street evangelism, I'm telling you, I highly recommend it, but... Um, Don't just start out without a little bit of precaution and training. Especially if you're in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. I took, uh, I think, six young preacher boys uh, when we were in the college in in Texas to to New Orleans at Mardi Gras week, and I let them loose on the street, on Bourbon Street, in the French Quarter. There's more to that story, but um, I wouldn't be allowed to tell most of it. Anyway, this young preacher and his, and his wife-to-be were, were in a street evangelism team. They went into inner city. They talked to people in bus stations. They, they talked to people on the street. They handed out gospel tracts, all the usual stuff. The male students went into some of the bars and they went into the flop houses. The flop houses where alcoholics go to sleep off their drunk. They ch- they're charged like a dollar a night to sleep in a rank-smelling, filthy room filled with metal bunk beds and often no mattresses. And one night, as we went to talk to some of the men in the flop house, he said, I met a man whose name was, let's just call him Frank for lack of another name, and I began talking with him about his relationship with God. And he was very open to what I was saying. Matter of fact, he seemed to even understand most of the stuff that I was explaining to him. And the one thing that really came out prominently was that he wanted a new life. He didn't want to stay in this life that he was in and the way he was living it. So he said, come Sunday, actually Sunday evening that uh, week, I took him to church with me. And afterwards, as we were coming out and getting ready to go to the car, I asked him how long it had been since he had been home, since he'd been where his wife and family were, if he had one. And, and, uh, He said that it was a long time, and he did have a wife, and he did have children. So I said, well, do you want to go home? If so, I'll take you. 
So we got in the car, he said, and we drove to his house, and I'm expecting it to be a rundown part of town. Actually, it was a very nice neighborhood uh, out in the suburbs. And when his wife answered the door, she was very attractive, very pleasant. And I explained that I'd been talking with her husband and working with him, and he had made a decision that he wanted to turn his life around. And she welcomed him home, and, and, and he said, I got back in the car and drove back to school. But the next weekend... We went out to do the same thing in the same places, and I walked into that bar where I'd met Frank, and there was Frank. His wife wanted him home. His children wanted him home. He wanted to be home, but the choices he had made over time wouldn't allow him to stay home. He was now incapable of being where he belonged. And as hellish as that existence was, he kept choosing it over his beautiful wife and family at home. I want to just tell you, this scenario is repeated over and over and over hundreds of times every day in our broken world. It it causes us sometimes to stop and wonder, why do some people continue to live in their hell on earth? They could choose to live life so differently. They could stop making the choices that are destroying them. It would spare them so much pain and eliminate so much suffering. And sometimes we wish we could just make their choices for them. And let me just tell you, that's a recipe for disaster right there. Sometimes we wish we could even control them just to help them avoid the hell they're creating for themselves. But in spite of that, they keep making the wrong decisions time after time after time. Now, if that's true here and now, why would we think anything's going to be different in eternity? Now, I've got good news. The doors of heaven are still open. The possibility of real life is available. Real life. But the bondage of sin is so great. You notice I'm not categorizing sin so that I can list all the sins but ignore yours and you escape free and I escape free? Forget that, folks. The bondage of sin is so great and so powerful that the person caught in those bonds cannot seem to even break loose, certainly can't on his own or her own. What was true of the angels who gave up their position in glory to become demons and the followers of of the devil is also true of us. In Jude, verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. So Jesus describes the final judgment. I'm going back to Matthew, this time chapter 25, by saying, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want you to notice there the word eternal. That's forever, never ending. But it's used to describe both eternal life and eternal punishment. God will never force anyone to go to heaven. 
Not now? Not in the future? Not ever? But our choices, choices we're making today in life, are forever choices. So here's the third question. And by the way, this question was really well, really dealt with well when Pastor Todd did the series a number of months ago uh, entitled uh, Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. Remember that? That was a great series. And you find that message where he dealt with this question and he, he rang the bell. Now you've heard it. I know you have. Maybe you've even asked it yourself. So I'm just going to ask it on behalf of all of us because we've either said it or we've heard someone say it. And the question is, number three, how can a good God send people to hell? I'm not going to ask you how many of you have ever heard that or how many of you have ever argued and debated that or how many of you have maybe said that yourself. Let's be 100% clear in the truest sense. God never sends, does not send, will not send anyone to hell. People send themselves. God gave us this wonderful, unspeakable, terrible thing called freedom of will. You and I and every person who ever stepped foot on this planet, who ever breathed a breath, was endowed with free will. Every one of us. So we choose how we live here, and we choose how we live there, wherever you're there is. Now here is pure and present reality. Our choices are being made this very moment, whether we live with God or, or, or will we live without God. To think that you're going to be able or someone's going to be able to say a prayer of repentance at the 11th hour at the very last moment after a lifetime of sin and selfishness. Now, this is, I'm not saying it can't happen, but this is a gamble that I don't believe anybody in their right mind wants to make. Because a good God will let you do anything you want to do. Teenagers and young people and everybody else. Yeah, I know, it kind of, that's kind of a shocking statement. Well, so shocking, I'm going to say it again. A good God will let you do anything you want to do, period. That's not a conditional statement. He'll not force you to live for him. He'll not coerce you into making the right decision. He will not forgive you when you don't want his forgiveness. Why? Because you and I are free moral agents. I struggled with this for a long time because I I can't decide. We had a little discussion on this the other day. I can't decide if I'm really happy about this free will thing. 
So I'll put the question to you that I put to myself all the time. Well, would I rather have free will or just be a puppet? We're free moral agents. We make choices. You and I are responsible for the direction and the quality of our lives. Now and forever. And it would be hell for those who rebelled against God all their lives, I think, to be suddenly cast into heaven. If they were placed in heaven, they would willingly probably want to go back to the other place. G.K. Chesterton wrote this, and I quote, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. That's a power-packed statement. God honors our choices, and he will never force us to choose him. He will allow us to stay away from him for all eternity. I don't believe God created hell in the beginning. The earth was created as paradise, wasn't it? It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. We might even say it was prepared by the devil and his angels. Hey, look, go back into the history of the U.S. When the founding fathers were, 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 were putting things together to create a nation here, they went about the task of creating it, and they didn't start by building jails. They would have preferred to have a society without jails or without need of them, but jails became necessary because it was important to keep dangerous and evil people separated from the rest of society. But look, God is going to protect his own. In heaven, God keeps watch above his own. And Revelation 22:15 says, But outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And well, you could ask. Have you ever thought of this, Bob? Why doesn't God just force everyone to go to heaven? I can't answer that, but J.P. Moreland tried, and here's what he said, quote, God has given people free will, then there's no guarantee that everybody's going to choose to cooperate with him. The option of forcing everyone to go to heaven is immoral because it's dehumanizing. It strips them of the dignity, there's that word again, of making their own decision, and it, and it denies them their freedom of choice, and it treats them as a means to an end. Sometimes people feel that heaven will not be heaven if we're aware that hell exists, and maybe somebody we know or some loved one is there. Now, I want to tackle this. I'm not going to shy away from it. I believe, I'm telling you what I believe, that there will be a sense in those who are there that as humiliating and painful as it may be, they probably would prefer it to heaven. Is that not the case with people here and now? People all around us prefer to live in their own private hell over surrendering their lives to God. 
John Milton was right when he said the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It does not matter how bad hell is, they'll still prefer it. There will also be a sense in us that if people are there, and it may be somebody we know, we will at, we'll be at peace with it knowing that they are exactly where they're supposed to be and exactly ultimately where they want it to be. I've heard many people say, well, I'll go there. I mean, I'll be with my friends and I'll have this and I'll have that and the party will continue and so on. And what does that all boil down to? A good God or a bad God? I don't think so. A heaven and hell that are just figments of someone's imagination? I don't think so. It all boils down to the fact that we serve a great God and He's our Creator. And in us, He put free will. Accompanied by choices. Choices that affect time and eternity. So anybody who is prone to do it needs to quit pointing the finger at God and saying, oh, if that happens, that would be God's fault. God hates the idea of a hell. He wants everyone in heaven. We know this because the Bible describes it very, very clearly. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it said, He is patient with you. Is God patient with us? Is God patient with you? Well, he may not be with you, but he has been with me, I'll tell you. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says he's been patient. And he'll keep his promise. Not wanting anyone to perish, but who does he want to come to repentance and end up in heaven? Everyone. But that all should come to repentance. Everyone to come to repentance. Remember, Jesus wept over the people of Israel. He said, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Can we say it together? You were not willing. There's that word again, will. You were not willing And yet how quick we are to just point at God and say, this is not fair. It's just not just. God would hold out his arms to them. And so easily he could have just gathered them all in his arms and protected them like a mother hen. But they were not willing. How often we try the patience of God. Why? Because we are not willing. Let me share an illustration with you that I'll bring this home. And let me, before I do that, say this. The problem of the human family. Let's just nail it down this morning. We don't do anything else. Here's the problem of the human family. You say, uh, you can't talk about it because... I live in a dysfunctional family. and you, We're all in a dysfunctional family. Every last single one of us is in a dysfunctional family. It's called the human family. And the problem is the problem of the will. 
Now, I'm going to lose some people here, but I'm going to risk it. We do not want to surrender to anyone, even God. A young mother and her daughter were having a contest of wills. Any of you parents ever have a contest of wills? Is that a no? I guess not. Well, listen to the story anyway. Maybe there'll be something there. A lot of times the contest of the wills, and it was in this case, was a matter of who was going to be in charge that day. And after several attempts at getting through to the child through logic, that always works well. reason. Achieving no success whatsoever, the frustrated mom looked at her daughter, and my apologies to the Rachels in the room, but the little girl's name was Rachel, and she said, now Rachel, who is the mommy here? And looking up and without any hesitation, Rachel pointed her little finger to herself. I suggest to you that reflected in what took place in that moment is the problem with the the whole human race. You, me, and all the others. Captured in that scene is the concept of contest of will between the ruler of the universe and those who desire to be the ruler of the universe. Step aside, God, I can do it better. Just hands off, let me handle it. And at that point, God looks us straight in the face and says, Now, just who is God here? And without hesitation, we defiantly do this so often in our lives. And by pointing to ourselves... We're sending a message. We want to be in charge. We want to rule. We want to be God. Listen, my friend, that's not new. That's, the, that's as old as the Garden of Eden. That's where it all started. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, telling them, you know what you can do? You just go ahead and eat the forbidden fruit, and guess what? Supposedly forbidden. I don't know if God really said that or not. Planting doubts all the time. And you know what will happen? You'll be like God. Wow. See, they didn't have anybody else to compare themselves to. Like you and I, we always find somebody at a lower level, and then we make ourselves look good. We never choose somebody up here, but we always choose somebody down here. They had nobody. Just looking at one another and looking at God, that's their only comparison. And the devil said, you can be like God. What's that mean? You can be in charge of your own world. You don't have to surrender to God. Exercise your own will. They could, they could just do so much. They could just go your own way, Adam and Eve. Just, I hate to get to this point in the story. And so they did. 
And God, isn't this interesting? God allowed them to have their own way. See, anything that's going on in our lives, this is not new, folks. This is not new. And he allowed them to run a plan apart from his original plan for them. And that's why I say, people say, well, I don't get to heaven. I, I want to I, I wanna talk to Moses. I want to talk to Paul. I, wanna talk, I don't want to talk to any of those murderers. I want to talk to Adam. The devil said, you can be like God. You can control your own destiny. You can have your own plan. You can run your own world. I don't think he meant any of that stuff. You just do what you want to do. You have a will to do it. Exercise your will. And the reason I'm standing here today and we're doing this thing called church is because they did. In their popular parlance, they blew it for all of us. C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All of those are in hell because they chose it. So the Lord says, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And here's what he says. Now choose life so that you, I love this, and your children may live. God abhors all sin. And God loves all sinners. Praise the Lord. Give him glory. Let the church say amen. And his grace and his love are available to all. Grace, 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 the grace of God. The indescribable, unspeakable, unfathomable, incontrovertible, unimaginable, inexhaustible, inconceivable, unmerited, impeccable, incredible, incorruptible, immeasurable, unlimited, undeniable, unmistakable grace, amazing grace of our living and loving and life-giving God. So here's the balance. Man's free will, God's perfect justice. Heaven, hell. Eternal life, eternal death or separation forever from God. I want to say one or two more words to you and I'm going to wrap up, but while I'm thinking of right now, worship team, you can prepare and we'll be all set for you. Choices, choices, choices. If someone were to ask you today, 
Well, did you go to church? Yeah, I think what I saw they call church. And did you hear a message? Well, I'd rather not go there if I can help it. Well, what was the, what was the sermon about? If you say the sermon was about hell, you're only partly right. The intent of this message is about grace. It's about acceptance. It's about forgiveness. It's about God. It's about love. It's about His long-suffering. And if you, someone said, so what was the title? Just use one word. Choices. 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 Yeah, they spoke about our choices. That old man that they dug up from somewhere, he was talking about my choices. And your choices. And the old man wants to ask you one question. Have you made your choice for eternity? If not, will you make it today? And as you do, and as we sing this song that the worship team has prepared, will you commit and submit to the plan of God for your life, for now and forever? God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. You've made it much easier.